If you're enjoying History's Greatest Cities, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Take something iconic like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA. Used under license by FCA US LLC. Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast mini-series, History's Greatest Cities, exploring Europe's most beautiful, intriguing and historically significant cities. I'm Paul Bloomfield, travel writer and history fan, and in each episode of this series, I'll be virtually roaming the streets and sites of a great metropolis in the company of an expert historian guide. Together we'll delve into origin myths and uncover stories of shifting populations, conflicts and culture, wealth and weakness and we'll visit key locations that reveal fascinating insights into the people and events that shape the modern city. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Shushma Malik, a Nasis Classics Fellow at Newnham College, University of Cambridge. Shushma has a deep knowledge of Roman history and is also a writer and presenter. She has written about and discussed ancient Rome for publications such as BBC History magazine and on programmes including BBC Radio 4's In Our Time. Her book, The Nero Antichrist, Founding and Fashioning a Paradigm, was published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press. So she's the ideal guide to lead us through the rise, fall and resurgence of this remarkable city. Together we'll visit awe-inspiring monuments dating back to the days of the Republic and the Roman Empire, as well as medieval marvels and some more modern but equally fascinating landmarks. Along the way, we'll hopefully bust some ancient myths about Rome and the Romans. So Shushma, welcome and thank you for being with us today. Hello, thank you very much for having me. Rome, the founding myth of Rome is perhaps the most famous of any city. Can you briefly recount the legend of that founding and also the historical truth about the city's birth? So Rome was apparently or allegedly founded by twin brothers, Romulus and Remus. So this is the story of the mythological foundation of Rome, where these brothers are from outside the city are destined to be kings, but actually have quite a fraught relationship between the two of them when deciding who should become king. So they both decide that they're going to go and read the omens from different hills in in what will become Rome. So the Palatine Hill and the Aventine Hill. And out of this, Romulus claims to have seen the better Romans and claims kingship. The two sides then fight and Remus is killed. And that is the quite fraught story of the founding of of Rome in terms of an event of quite disturbing fratricide, really. 
And in terms of the historical truth of this, of course, it's a myth. It's a founding myth of how Rome managed to get its first king, essentially, because it was founded as a kingdom rather than what we might think of it of as a republic or an empire. But actually, around the sort of time that people envisage Romulus to have founded Rome, so this is the 8th century BCE, we do have also evidence of some early settlements, Iron Age settlements in Rome. And these take the form of things like small burial sites and different developments in terms of what could possibly be sort of housing and huts and and that kind of thing. That's great. And is there anything that can be seen by visitors relating to that period now, or is that all long gone? Yeah, so if you go up onto the Palatine Hill, you can see, well, you'd go up onto the Palatine Hill, first of all, to see things that were built by Augustus and other emperors. But actually, if you go over to one particular side of it, which is quite well signposted, there are still archaeological excavations going on, which could have been part of that Iron Age settlement. We think of Rome, obviously, we think of the empire and before that, the Republic. How did the Republic start? What was the background to that? And how did Rome develop after that? So we have the kings for the first part of Rome's history. We have seven kings. And the last of those kings was a man named Tarquinius Suburbus or Tarquin the Proud, as we might know him. And he was a tyrannical king. He wasn't supposed to have been a particularly successful king in terms of um, fairness and, and so forth. And he had a son named Sextus Tarquinius. And Sextus Tarquinius, the son, um, was in sort of a group of aristocrats in Rome. One night they're at dinner in the house of a man named Tarquinius Collatinus and Sextus Tarquinius uh, sort of took a liking to Tarquinius Collatinus's wife, whose name was Lucretia. When he then waited until he knew that of a, an occasion where Tarquinius Collatinus was going to be out, he then went over to uh, Tarquinius Collatinus's house and forced Lucretia to have sex with him. So this is the what episode known as the rape of Lucretia. So this, again, the incredibly disturbing episode in, in Roman history caused the expulsion of the kings. So at that point, Tarquinius Superbus uh, and his family were expelled from Rome and we get the foundation of the Republic, which is based in the idea that no one person should have complete power. So you have two consuls and not one king. Um, we already had a Senate. The Senate had been founded by Romulus, in fact, but the idea of the two consuls rather than the one king was very important. So at this stage, how, how large was Rome and how did it develop politically and geographically over the following centuries of the Republic? So Rome was still relatively small at this stage when we consider what Rome was going to become with with hindsight, as it were. So we started to get stories of expansion during the kings. So Romulus, for example, expanded into surrounding territory. Again, another particularly horrific story to do with this abduction of Sabine women is part of that story as well, because Rome needed women in order to populate. But Really, at this point, Rome is still uh, very much in one particular part of Italy, as we call it now. During the following centuries of the Republic, it's going to expand hugely, first out into Italy, into further parts of Italy, but then also into other parts of the Mediterranean. So most famously with its wars against Carthage, which was another 
big empire. Um, and then also its wars against the Macedonians as well. So it's going to expand sort of south and west into uh, North Africa and Spain through the wars with Carthage, but then also out into the east as well. And of course, while it was gaining power across well, around the Mediterranean, really, Rome, the city was developing as well. And there are some sites in in Rome itself that survive today that can tell us a bit about that, aren't there? Yes, absolutely. So one of the things that we um, see in Rome is as we get these victorious generals, so the people in charge of of leading these wars, conducting these wars, not just one person, but often there'd be one who sort of took the the glory, as it were, um, at the end of a battle or at the end of a war. These people could become immensely wealthy through spoils, um, the 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 stealing of artifacts, the stealing of money, and and so forth from places that had been conquered. And that money then comes back to Rome, both in terms of artworks and and sort of financial assets, but also in terms of people. So people sold into enslavement is another way that um, a lot of this money entered the city. And we then get buildings being built as a result of this. So if we think of temples in the Roman Forum, for example, quite a few of these we can see is associated with different parts of, of Roman conquest. So for example, the temple of Castor and Pollux, uh, one of the very early ones, is associated with an early battle that the Romans had against um, other Italians. So obviously the history of Rome has been really marked by a number of conflicts, external conflicts and internal conflicts, and, and the end of the Republic was was no different. We know of this very powerful general, Julius Caesar. What was his role in the development of Rome and what happened after that? So Julius Caesar is very famous, of course, for the politics of the late Roman Republic. Um, He wasn't alone. There are other key figures in this um, period, such as Pompey is another one, um, who had vast amounts of money, partly, again, through the expansion of the empire into the east, uh, which he was in charge of for part in part in in any case so these were two very very wealthy men and you see that in the imprint of the city so one of the things that you can go and visit when in Rome is the remains of the forum of Julius Caesar which Julius Caesar started during his lifetime but was in fact finished by his adopted son Octavian as he was then and you can see the sorts of buildings that uh, Caesar had envisaged for Rome and for the Forum, but also importantly, he he expanded out the Forum into another area because, of course, because of all of the different temples and um, other monuments being built, the Forum got quite densely occupied, uh, you know, during this period of of Rome's expansion, as you'll see from visiting, there's uh, a lot of different layers of uh, ancient Roman history to see there. Um, So Julius Caesar did have to demarcate some space out for himself, as Octavian would too. But we also have um, another great site, which unfortunately doesn't remain, which was built by Pompey, which was his huge theatre. And This is famous, of course, because it was in a part of Pompey's theatre, in a temple attached to Pompey's theatre, that Julius Caesar was assassinated. And of course, that marked another shift in the fortunes of Rome. So we're talking now around the turn from BC to AD, roughly speaking. What, What happened politically and what followed Caesar's assassination? 
So as we turn, as you say, from from BC into AD, we've had the death of Julius Caesar in 44 BCE. And after that, there's a period of civil war, as, as we might call it. We have new rising figures. So Octavian, who is the adopted son of Julius Caesar, but also Mark Antony, who had been one of Caesar's close allies. And that period sees a pact between the two and then a power struggle between the two. But eventually, Actually, in 31 BCE, Octavian beat Antony. We then get a period where Octavian sort of has to try and turn things around a little bit, going from being a warlord, essentially, into being someone who can be a political leader in a period of peace. And of course, those two things are quite different. So in 27 BCE, we see him awarded the title of Augustus by the Senate. So that's where we get the first emperor and the emperor Augustus comes into power. And we have then quite a long rule under Augustus. He rules until 14 CE or AD. Um, And during that time, he was able to build. So this really does, again, play out in the physical landscape of Rome. Uh, He finishes Julius Caesar's forum, as I mentioned. He also builds his own. And he also expands out into the campus Martius. So if you go and see the Pantheon, that's in what used to be um, called the Campus Martius, which is the field of Mars, which is where the Roman army used to collect before they went out to go to war, essentially, and also to recollect on the way back before entering the city proper. So we have the Parthenon in that area, but also another um, extraordinary monument, which is the Arapakis, the altar of Augustan peace, essentially, which was dedicated to Augustus by the Senate. And is next to uh, Augustus's mausoleum, which actually has been reopened to the public quite recently. So Augustus, obviously, he he had managed to find a kind of peace in Rome. The empire was still large and expanding. We know that Julius Caesar attempted to conquer Britain and, and the empire by now was spanning much of Mediterranean Europe and even Central Europe. He was followed by a number of other emperors who wanted to glorify their own legacy as well, wasn't he? What what were those and, and what impact did they have on Rome? Yeah, so we again see this play out in, in different methods of building, sometimes linked to expansion and imperial expansion, but now not always because there isn't the same pace of expansion in the imperial period as there was in the republican period so as you mentioned we do have britain you know julius caesar went there but eventually being brought into the roman empire by the emperor claudius and then we also get nero and his activities in armenia but actually if we look at the city of rome itself a lot of building is going on that is linked to empire in some ways um, in some examples but in other ways um, has other agendas behind it as well, including the beautification of the city, but also trying to outdo your previous emperor. So we have the escalation, the the forums are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And and another great forum to visit when you're in Rome is Trajan's Forum and Marketplace. And that's where Trajan's Column is now. And, And you'll see from there just how extraordinarily big and extraordinarily grand these these places uh, became. And also, you also see how the emperors are having to move around different places of the city in order to be able to find space for their their building projects. And the Palatine Hill is another one to look out for, because that's where, in fact, we get the word palace from, palatial, palatine. 
And uh, you'll also see examples of, of different emperors and, di- and the expanding size of, of their, their palaces from Augustus's fairly modest residence, which he was quite clear that it was fairly modest, to something like Domitian's palace that, that, that you can still see um, some remains of on the Palatine. And am I thinking at this time as well, uh, there were efforts by the emperors to keep the populace happy? To, to give them what they wanted in order to maintain their control over the city and the empire. So we've got sites like the Colosseum and so on, which were about entertainment. Yeah, so alongside the sort of buildings that were to do with the emperors and, and their uh, religious temples and so forth, there was also a very important role of the emperor to be a benefactor, to be a good benefactor to the to the city, to the empire. In fact, this goes into imperial building as well. We can see this not just in Rome, but outside in, in other parts of the empire as well. And um, so the Colosseum is, of course, a very famous example of this, uh, built in the Flavian period by Vespasian and then eventually finished by his son Titus. And that was partly funded actually by the war in Judea. So we do have a, an imperial very much context there for in terms of the money side of things. But also it was Rome's, bizarrely, when we think of how Rome had been, how long Rome had, had existed by this point, but it was Rome's first sort of permanent amphitheatre. There had been amphitheatres before this, but they hadn't been the big kind of permanent structures that we see with the Colosseum. And you really do, um, of course, get the emphasis on things for people in the city to do. If you live in Rome, there has to be a lot of benefits to that. And the Colosseum is, of course, one of them, but also other types of buildings, so porticos and so forth, that people could congregate in 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 the evening, different taverni and and sort of restaurants and, and that sort of thing that people could could go to. And these weren't, you know, very necessarily expensive places. They could be very cheap indeed. Um, but there was part of being in Rome meant that you did have these kinds of amenities as well. And and of course, shops and, and places to sell sell things. Again, Trajan's marketplace is such a good example of this if you if you go and, and have a look at the kind of kind of shop areas um, that you can see there. We're talking now in the early centuries of the first millennium AD, and there were other changes happening further away in the East at that time with the growth of Christianity. How did, uh, how did the arrival of Christianity in the Roman Empire affect the wider region and also Rome itself? So Christianity began, as as many people will know, in uh, Judea, which was at this stage um, a Roman province, but ruled by a client king, which was um, Herod. And it's came over to Rome fairly quickly, we think, because we get, for example, the evidence of someone like St. Paul writing letters to the Romans that were probably dated around the mid-first century CE. So we're talking only about 20 or 30 years or so after the death of Christ. So Christianity was quite a mobile religion, it seems, from a fairly early period. And by this, I don't mean there were a great number of Christians in Rome. I think that's certainly not the case. But there were some, there were enough for Paul to address them in a letter and to consider them as a sort of church, if you like. And again, I don't use that term to denote a physical building, but rather a community, a community in Rome. So we do have evidence, as I said, from from a fairly early period of of Christianity in uh, other parts of the empire than Judea. But really, we see the effects of it 
in the empire, sort of building, I would say, in the later second century into the third century, and then really reaching a sort of climax under an emperor named Diocletian, where we do get some very significant persecutions of the Christians in the uh, late third and early fourth centuries. Um, And that is the context, if you like, for Constantine and Constantine becoming uh, the first Christian emperor. The empire itself at that stage was changing, wasn't it, under under Constantine and in that era in terms of uh, a new centre evolving in what we now know as Istanbul, Constantinople. Yes. So by this point, the Roman Empire, as we've sort of been talking about, is very large. And you do have, of course, as one might expect, quite a lot of trouble securing your borders. Really, from the second century onwards, we get examples of of this. Marcus Aurelius has to spend the majority, actually, of his time as emperor away from Rome, you know, in in the north in particular. But also the east is a very, very problematic border. So that that one that is on the the, the buffer zone between Rome and the Parthian Empire, because of course uh, we might be focusing on Rome, but there was all sorts of other um, imperial powers in the world in this time and, and other powers as well. So we have uh, the Romans and the Parthians in particular um, being a difficult, the, the buffer zone between those being a difficult border to keep under control. Um, so what the emperors recognised was that actually perhaps the empire had become too big for one person to control on their own and again this is sort of in the about the the third century late third century and Diocletian whom I mentioned briefly before decided that actually it might be better to have one person based in the east and one person based in the west and you might think that the west um, as in Rome would be the place for the senior emperor or the senior colleague to be but actually by this time um, that was the east there was a lot going on in the east there was a lot of money there was a lot of wealth so that's again sort of the context for what um, happened later on which is when the seat of power became constant. Constantinople rather than although it's a little bit more complicated than that because there was still a senate in Rome and there was still an incredibly powerful symbolism to the city as well we get accounts of of emperors uh, entering Rome sort of after Constantine entering Rome and being awestruck by the the history of the city because if we're thinking this is sort of fourth century uh, CE Rome has had uh, such a, a you know huge history before that so they then were struck with the antiquity of this city um already let alone how we might see it now and rome famously suffered attacks can you tell us a little bit about what impact that had on rome and and what happened after those Yes, so different groups did attack Rome at different times. It's important, I think, to recognise that these groups were ones that the Romans already had a lot of contact with through trade and so forth. And we can also see this period as a story of migration uh, in quite a few ways as well. Um, But there was an attack on on Rome, the city, that happened in 410 uh, CE that was quite monumental um, because of the symbolism, again, of attacking the city of Rome. Not since actually 390 BCE had Rome been attacked, had the physical city, I mean, the empire, of course, but the physical city of Rome been attacked. Not even had Hannibal, the famous Carthaginian um, adversary of, of Rome, not 
he had not even managed to make it into the city. He had been in Italy, but not the city of Rome. So there was a huge symbolic power to the idea of invaders being in the city. And that is uh, what happened in 410. And then eventually sort of we see over the century after that, the again, the shifts in power and um, the shift of, of the seat of power more firmly to the east and what we now call the Eastern Roman Empire, or more properly, I think, probably the Byzantine Empire. So Rome obviously had a bit of a, a, a downtime, if you like, after that sort of early fifth century in terms of its influence in the empire as a whole. How did that change over the following centuries? Obviously, we know now Rome is the capital of Italy and it's a large, thriving city. What happened over the following centuries after that attack in 410? Yeah, so after the um, attack in 410, um, we do obviously see the idea of political power being moved away from Rome, the idea of what the empire looks like changing quite significantly um, to focus much more on the east. But I guess The one thing that is still in Rome is that it is the seat of the papacy. So a different kind of power, the the head of what we call the Catholic Church, but still being present in Rome. And again, a bit later on, so if we kind of go over to um, about 800 CE, so the very early 9th century, we do then get a significance for Rome. Um, Again, in terms of a very famous, again, historical figure, Charlemagne, being crowned in Rome as the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire uh, by Pope Leo III. Um, And this took place in um, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. So again, the symbolism here is is quite extraordinary, a place where where popes had been, we're we're familiar with already from uh, where popes are are named and and elected and so forth. Um, Here we also get the Holy Roman Emperor being crowned in, in 800 CE and being called an emperor of the Holy Roman Empire empire as well the the terminology here is is quite significant even though charlemagne was very much a traveling emperor we might we might call him he had courts in lots of different different cities and as people did in in this period or, or leaders did in this period the the crowning in rome was was quite symbolic as you say as we move towards the later medieval period rome has a different function as a a city within that Holy Roman Empire. But it also developed commercially. And at the end of that medieval period, the Renaissance obviously arrived. And that's a period that we often associate with a lot of the great buildings and artworks and so on in Rome, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. So, um, of course, Florence is very important in this this period as well. So other parts of what, again, what we now call Italy, because that in and of itself is a different story. But um, certainly the idea, again, of the papacy being founded in Rome. So where do people like Michelangelo go? Um, they go to Rome because they're hired to do these extraordinary projects that we are now familiar with uh, from seeing in uh, not only in Rome, but examples of in museums, really all over the world this kind of artwork it's it's spread quite uh, prolifically so we get key figures um, around this time sort of very important and very wealthy figures like the Borgias who of course are are creating again different funding art and architecture in this period but again perhaps the most famous examples of the sort of artwork and the sort of culture that we see are in the Vatican so of course the Sistine Chapel um, with the very famous artwork of, of Michelangelo but also other other artists as well like Raphael um, but but 
really um the architecture too so the the sort of villas um and the the palaces that were built um, around rome in order to accommodate these very wealthy people so over that period from the from the 15th century into the 16th and beyond it was uh, it was a wealthy city because the papacy was there and it was an important center and again that that continued really for a few centuries didn't it yes it did so um other kind of Examples we can think of are famous Roman monuments that come from the 18th century, so perhaps more Baroque or, or Rococo styles, would be um, something like the Trevi Fountain. The tre- and by which I mean the Trevi Fountain as we sort of see it now, rather than um, the ones that, that came before. So there had been fountains on that site before that, uh, a number of fountains dating back to the Roman period. But uh, it's in it's in this uh, sort of the 18th century period that we see the, the sort of substantial rest restoration and and rebuilding to the kind of monument that we recognise it as today. Um, And also things like the Spanish Steps, which are, again, a very, very famous site in Rome. And also in this period, you get from in the, in the sort of 17th and 18th century, there are lots of aristocrats traveling around cities like Rome and other cities in Italy, but also other parts of, of, of uh, Europe as well. So Greece and Paris and, and, um, and, and different, all sorts of different parts of Europe is, is what we now call the Grand Tour. So the idea that these aristocrats would go and travel around these ancient sites um, and um, sites some other other periods of prominence as well and then bring those ideas bring that sort of cultural heritage as it were back to back to Britain and back to um, you know London is a, a huge example of this and this is also where we start to see sort of the beginnings of some of the big museum collections that we now you know get to enjoy in in various cities across the UK. Towards the end of that period, we know that the later 18th and 19th century were very turbulent times in many states across Europe. And that was a period when a sense of sort of Italian identity and unity was developing as well, wasn't it? Yeah, so we do have, um, of course, the revolutions of the late 18th and 19th centuries. So if you think about the French Revolution of the late 18th century, but also the 1848 revolutions that take place throughout Europe. Those have knock-on effects in various parts of, of Europe, as you would expect them to. And we do then see quite a lot of political movement uh, during this time, um, including some brief periods where Rome again, briefly returned to a republic, such as in in 1849, in the context of of the 1848 uh, revolutions. But really, some of the famous names we might know from this period are emerging during this mid-19th century period as well. So Giuseppe Manzini and and Giuseppe Garibaldi, who both held offices in in that Republic of of 1849, um, and were also, of course, key figures in the unification of Italy or Risorgimento, which occurred um, through the 1860s and and early 1870s, um, which essentially created the Kingdom of Italy. Rome, though, was not immediately its capital. Um, That was first Turin and then Florence uh, before Rome became the capital in the 1870s. So by the turn of the 20th century, we had a a unified Italy and Rome, this this ancient city, was experiencing some, some tumult, as was the rest of Europe throughout the first half of the 20th century. What was happening in Rome at that time? 
So Rome was was uh, quite important to, again in the 20th century because of the context of Mussolini um, in particular. Mussolini saw, sort of saw himself as a new Emperor Augustus. His focus was quite solidly on building back the glory of Rome through, uh, you know, the fascist state. And we again see that in the city. We see that in the in the fabric of the city. So when you're walking from the Victoria Emmanuel monument, which is a monument to Risorgimento, to unification, when you're walking from there to the Colosseum, you walk down a road called the Via dei Fori Imperiali. And that is a road that was built by Mussolini. And actually, it's cuts through some of the ancient forums. So parts of them have, have been, it's difficult to, to see parts of them because of this road, unfortunately, but it is, again, an idea of, of that there needed to be some sort of triumphal route, as it were, between these two very important monuments in, in, in history. That was a sort of, again, symbolic way of showing Roman power um, and having this road through the forums is very much, again, part of, part of the fascist imprint, uh, Mussolini's imprint on the city. And obviously, after the end of the Second World War, when um, the Italian fascist was defeated, there was a period when Europe was rebuilding itself. And then Rome and Italy had a resurgence as a sort of artistic sporting centre, didn't it? Yes. Yeah, so Rome became a republic again in 1946 in, in the aftermath of the war. And again, we have things like the um, Olympic Games being held there in 1960. And again, the building that, that comes along with that, I think we're probably all very familiar with that kind of story um, now as well. There was still political turmoil in various in various parts of, of Roman's 20th century history um, as well, even later 20th century history. But certainly we also get the idea of Rome being a, a tourist site in perhaps a slightly different way. So we've talked about the Grand Tour and the Grand Tourists and so forth, but um, perhaps the, the widening out of Rome in terms of its its music culture, its its fashion culture, and, and again, as you mentioned, its sporting culture as well is uh, building in this period. So I think as you've explained very eloquently, Rome today is a real palimpsest, isn't it, of, of sites from so many different eras, starting from, if you like, the 8th century BC to today. And we've talked a bit about some of the major sites that most visitors will want to see, like the Colosseum and, and the Roman Forum. I'd like to ask you to pick five sites that you think bring a, a new aspect of Rome's history to visitors, if you can pick just five. <laughs> sure. It's a difficult task, but I think I, I've, I've managed to narrow it down to five. We're on that subject of the layers of history, it's such an important part of Rome, I think. it's it's You see it everywhere. You see it with the, you know, the modern shops and then the ancient um, sites, but also the medieval and the Renaissance and all of those different stages of Rome that we've been talking about, all layered on top of each other. And we actually have an example of this also in, in one building, which is the Church of, of San Clemente um, on the Via di San Giovanni in Laterano. The Church um, of San Clemente was built in, in uh, 1108. But what's really fascinating about this building is that it, it's it's layered. So below the 12th century church, there's another church ba- dating from the 5th century. And below that, there are two Roman buildings from the late 1st century. And one of these buildings contained a temple to the cult of Mithras, known as the Mithraeum, um, which we see examples of in, in other parts of the Roman Empire, including in Britain, as an example of a Mithraeum in London. And also, of course, on Hadrian's Wall 
all because this was a, a popular cult with the army, Roman army in this period. So in this one building, you can see layers from different parts of Roman history by going down and by seeing all of the different parts of it. And you really can get a sense of how the city is is built one on top of the other um, from the bottom of the Roman houses through to the 5th century church and then up to the 12th century church. My next one is the tomb of Caecilia Metella, um, and this is on the Via Appia, um, because again, it's the a, a, a great monument. It's a, an incredible funerary monument. It's absolutely huge. It consists of a cylindrical drum that's 11 metres high, but it also, I think, uh, reaffirms the status of women in Rome, so aristocratic women as well. So this is a, a very well-connected woman. I'm absolutely not saying all women got tombs like this, but she um, was Cecilia Metella. Um, the inscription on the tomb tellus tells us was the daughter of a Quintus Caecilius Metellus Creticus, and she was also the wife of someone named Crassus. And this tomb probably dates to the late first century BCE. Um, and Caecilia's father was probably um, the consul of 69 BCE. And the husband, Crassus, may have been the Marcus Licinius Crassus, who was consul in in 30 BCE. And he is the grandson of that famous Crassus that we might know of from the first triumvirate. So the history of who she is 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 fascinating in terms of the tomb. But also um, inside of it, there was a collection of inscriptions and sculptures in in the walls of the courtyard that are very much worth um, having a look at as well. Um, And also, again, we get more layering because um, in the late 12th century, the tomb was used as part of a fortress built by the Caetani family. So you also have the different parts of of this huge structure um, that that still remain. My third one is connected to trade. So a different part of sort of the Roman experience, if you like, uh, the ancient Roman experience. And that's Monte Testaccio. Um, So Monte um, is a a mountain in um, a part of Rome known as uh, Testaccio. But the Monte Testaccio is no ordinary mountain. It's a mountain made of amphorae. And you're probably used to seeing amphorae in museums. They're those pottery jars used to store goods and to transport them around the Roman Empire. So all sorts of things from grain to olive oil. It's very little ones, you know, very little pots might um, contain much more expensive goods like perfumes and so forth. But archaeologists have discovered millions of these smashed amphorae in this artificial mountain, I suppose we would call it. Monte Testaccio. But there's actually a bit more to the story than just thinking of this as a rubbish heap for these these pots. It's mainly made up of, or the layers that have been excavated so far, are mainly made up of olive oil amphorae. So these are the very big sort of containers that would have shipped, have have olive oil shipped um, in them, that the oil would have been pulled off into smaller containers. Um, But the reason why these pots may not have been reused in the same way as, for example, your grain pots is because the oil would go rancid of course in in the clay so poor the clay is porous and, and rancid oil probably remained in that porous clay so Monte Testaccio was probably an area around the side of a warehouse where these amphorae were broken up and then they were also covered in lime to hide the smell so you can now go uh, to Testaccio and see the remains of these pots it is quite extraordinary as a visual site as well um, and as the historical side of it. The next thing I wanted to talk about was the Servian Wall, because this is something that you might encounter as you're entering Rome on the train. 
and not because necessarily the train ride from the airport or or other parts of Italy go past it, but rather because the train station itself, the central train station in Rome, Termini, um, has bits of the wall built into it, (laughs) as it were. And the Servian Wall is a defensive boundary um, that was probably built around the 4th century BCE. And it's one of Rome's earlier city boundaries, so um, as as a defensive mechanism. It's named after the Roman king Servius Tullius, who, um, according again to legend, reigned in about the 6th century BCE. But it's been dated using modern methods to the 4th. So even though it's attributed to him, the wall itself is, is dated slightly later. As I said, you can go and see remains of this wall and there are other places, but including the fast food section of Termini train station. So it's quite something to be able to eat a piece of pizza or um, a burger and uh, and be next to this kind of incredibly old piece of Roman history. And my fifth one, it was difficult to make this final choice, but um, I went for um, the Capitoline Insula. So the Capitoline is a hill in Rome. Um, You will come across it anyway because there are the very famous museums um, on the Capitoline Hill. But the Capitoline Insula, or island, um, as insula literally means, is blocks of flats and shops um, that adjoin the Capitoline Hill. And these date from the early 2nd century CE. So they are roughly contemporary with Trajan's marketplace that I, um, I mentioned earlier. And these are a great example of the kind of small small room or flat you might be able to rent in Rome if you didn't have huge amounts of money. When we think of Roman houses, we can often get caught up with the idea of the sort of grand villas that we see on TV shows like I Claudius or HBO's Rome and, and that kind of thing. But this is a much, much more regular everyday version of of housing in ancient Rome. So this block is five stories high, so quite an extraordinary thing to see from such a period as well. And the first three stories were shops, um, and then you have individual rooms on the fourth story and what looks like an apartment, um, a flat on on the fifth story. So um, again, it's it's a wonderful thing to be able to see something like this from such such a long time ago. Well, that's an incredibly diverse selection of of places for people to visit. Can I ask you to share one piece of advice for anybody planning a visit to Rome? So this might seem obvious because um, hopefully you will do this anyway, but walk around Rome at night. It is one of the most beautiful cities lit up um, at night. Actually, when I first went to Rome, the first time I ever saw the Colosseum was lit up at night. And it's it's really wonderful because you can come up from the metro, the tube, essentially the underground, and you come up these escalators and suddenly it just starts to appear in front of you and all the lights are on and it's just absolutely stunning and not just uh, that central forum bit but if you go across the river to Hadrian's mausoleum as well um, again that walk and then around from there up to the uh, basilica of saint peter's is just an absolutely stunning view it's much quieter it's incredibly beautifully lit and rome really does its um its nighttime images of the city very well so um i would say you'll probably be going out to get some pizza anyway and just take a little bit of extra time and have a bit of a walk around because it is it's really stunning that sounds extraordinarily tempting thank you shishma that was shishma malik her book the nero antichrist founding and fashioning a paradigm published by cambridge university press is available now 
thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.